From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. There's a spirited, some might even call it a knockdown dragout, battle over leadership of the Republican Party in Florida. But the common goal is political domination at all levels of government. The Democrats there are trying to um, really impose a leftist agenda on citizens in Florida. Also this week, Florida's murky policies regarding LGBTQ young people, although not yet in effect, are already having repercussions. We would likely have to attempt to seek care out of state. We'll also get a comprehensive rundown of exactly what Florida lawmakers did during last week's special session on property insurance and explore the history of the Cuban diaspora in the Sunshine State. I'm Tom Flanagan. This is Capitol Report. After a run of successes, the Republican Party of Florida is looking for a new leader. Outgoing party chair Joe Gruters will leave early next year to run for treasurer of the Republican National Committee. Now two high-powered leaders of the state GOP are vying to succeed Gruters and to wipe out what's left of Florida Democrats. Margie Menzel has more. The two candidates in the race so far are Sarasota County State Committee Man Christian Ziegler and Leon County GOP Chair Evan Power. They're both proud of how the state party has performed in recent years, commanding the governor's mansion, legislature, and cabinet. Here's Ziegler. Uh, we've absolutely crushed the Democrats in voter registration. Um, back in 2008, I think there were 650,000 more Democrats than Republicans in Florida. Now we're at over 300,000 more Republicans than Democrats in Florida. So we've had almost a million voter registration, a million voters swing towards the Republican side. That's incredible. Governor DeSantis winning by almost 20 points is incredible. Power led the GOP to substantial victories in traditionally blue Leon County, increasing Republican turnout from year to year. And at the, at the same time, we've depressed some of their turnout because they've become more radical. And so what we've done is turned out Republicans at a, at a historically high rate, and they've not been as successful. And we're able to flip a state Senate seat and a school board seat. We're also able, as a local party, to outraise the Democratic Party two to one, which I don't think can be over-explained on how successful that was in helping us send our message out to the voters. But both candidates eye the map of Florida and see Democrats still in office. In addition to having been a Sarasota County Commissioner, Ziegler has been the statewide party's vice chair. He says Democrats are promoting the breakdown of the family. There's still some Democrats in both the House, the State House, and the State Senate. Uh, they need to be defeated. They need to be out of office. Um, you go around the state and you see in these local communities, whether they're, it's at the school board level or the city commission level or the county commission level, and um, the Democrats there are trying to um, really impose a leftist agenda on citizens in Florida until they're all out of office. Our work is not done. Power has chaired the Leon County Republican Party for eight years and has been the state party's chairman of chairs for four years. He acknowledges that statewide the party is in a very strong position, but wants to focus on winning more city and county commission seats. I think if you look across the state, there's a lot of places. You look in Tampa, where we were extremely successful in the last election. There is a city council there and a, and a mayor there that is not in line with our agenda. So you have 
Jacksonville, you have Tampa, you have Miami, you have those areas where we've been successful, that we need to continue to deliver Republican leaders and get some people elected in Tampa and Miami that can kind of change the trajectory there. What more could a party leader do to build on the recent record of Florida Republicans? Here's power. I think we obviously need to have a strong performance in a presidential race to return a president to the White House. And also on county and cities, I think there are a lot of work there's a lot of work to do there to elect some strong Republicans to lead some counties and in some cities where we see some Democrats kind of trying to set an agenda that's a little more progressive. And we need to fight on those, th- those levels so that we can be competitive and build a bench long term. Ziegler says he wants to make the state more ruby red. And, uh, you know, protect the state, not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. And, uh, you know, it's almost like NASCAR. I mean, I don't want to just win. I don't want to get to the finish line before them. I actually want to lap them a couple times. Um, So that's my focus, and that's my passion, and that's what we're going to do. If I become chairman, I'm going to be a very aggressive, hands-on, you know, chairman. I'm going to do this nonstop, and we're going to continue to crush the Democrats in Florida. So far, Power and Ziegler are the only two candidates in the race. The election is in February. I'm Margie Menzel. New rules in Florida restricting access to gender-affirming care for trans youth have not gone into effect. Two state medical boards must hold public hearings and complete other procedural steps before the rules are finalized. But as Stephanie Colombini reports, transgender kids and their advocates say the decision is already causing harm. It's been a tough year for Josie. We're not using her last name to protect her privacy. She's a 15-year-old from St. John's County. Ever since Surgeon General Joseph Latipo started calling for a ban on gender-affirming medications for minors in the spring, Josie's been terrified she'd lose access to the puberty blockers and hormones she takes to help her body align with her identity. Medical boards appointed by the governor eventually voted to restrict doctors from prescribing these treatments. But kids already receiving them can continue. Josie says it feels bittersweet. Sweet because people like me who are already on the health care are not affected at the moment. But people who had a dream of having it are crushed. Several youth gender programs around the state have paused operations since this process began. A clinic at the University of Florida is seeing patients. They're prioritizing kids who are already preparing to start hormone treatments. Doctors say this kind of care comes after lengthy counseling, conversations with parents, and physical health assessments, all in line with standards set by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health and Endocrine Society. Kids also must have started puberty. That hasn't happened yet for Elizabeth's 11-year-old daughter, She's also asked us not to use her last name. There is not a day that passes that our family is not riddled with fear of what is going to happen to our healthy, thriving child if she is forced to go through a puberty that does not align to who she is. Elizabeth says her daughter has consistently been diagnosed with gender dysphoria since she was a toddler. That's the distress a person feels when their body doesn't match their identity. Her parents supported her transition. At that young age, it meant changing things like pronouns and clothing. Elizabeth says most people don't know her daughter was assigned male at birth. She says her daughter should be able to tell people when she's ready. But this ban could disrupt her care. Elizabeth says the family's determined to prevent that from happening. 
we would likely have to attempt to seek care out of state, which would be an enormous burden. Money we simply wouldn't have. There's a chance Elizabeth's daughter could access hormone treatments in Florida down the line. The Board of Osteopathic Medicine, which regulates DOs, included an exception in its rule. Doctors could prescribe new patients' hormones for gender dysphoria if they're part of a clinical trial at a medical school. The Board of Medicine, which regulates MDs, was planning to pass the same carve-out. Here's Board Chair David Diamond at a joint meeting in November urging his colleagues to do so. Let us study it. Let us study it well. Let us use the advantages that we have of having distributed high-quality medical schools throughout this state, and let us be the light to the world to determine what is the best care for these folks. But he was outvoted. Some board members referred to studies that claimed large numbers of kids who went on hormones stopped transitioning later in life. Researchers have gone on to say the state misrepresented that data. More recent studies find the vast majority of kids who receive gender-affirming care stick with it. Simone Chris, director of Transgender Rights Initiative at Southern Legal Counsel, says the current situation is unprecedented. What we are looking at now is truly bizarre because we have two different governing bodies who are going to have different standards of care for treatment of the same diagnoses in the same population in the same state. The boards could still make changes to these rules. Chris expects they'll schedule public hearings in the new year, but could do that sooner. Transgender youth and their families say this process has been traumatic and they're uneasy about the future. But they say they're determined to keep fighting. For Health News Florida, I'm Stephanie Colombini. Well, it's getting a little bit late for this, but if you are planning on flying out for the holidays, you might be hard-pressed to find overnight parking. WLRN's Joshua Ceballos has some insights on where best to leave the sleigh on your extended stay. Overnight airport parking can be expensive, especially if you're flying from Miami International. Long-term parking at MIA's main garages is pricey, but you can save a chunk of change at the remote park-and-ride lot, which charges only $12 a day. The lot is located at Northwest 45th Avenue, accessible by Lejeune Road and Perimeter Road. Key West International Airport only has short-term and long-term on-site lots with no remote economy lot like other larger airports. Flyers out of Fort Lauderdale shave off some dollars if they park in the overflow lot between the airport and I-95, though you may not know if the lot is open until your departure day because the airport only opens that lot when the garages are full. You can visit broward.org slash airport to find more information. Thrifty Palm Beach Airport passengers can park at the economy lot east of Terminal C to save some much-needed holiday cash. I'm Joshua Ceballos in Miami. Coming up on Capitol Report, we'll get a really detailed look at what Florida lawmakers did during their lightning-fast special session last week. This culminated in the biggest, meatiest, beefiest, Uh, property insurance reform legislation that this state has ever seen. A noted author interviews dozens of Floridians to produce his chronicle of Cuban migration to the state. I believe you can't really understand Florida if you don't understand the Cuban exiles because they've been such an integral part of making the state what it is today. 
And one Florida town has come up with a bright idea when it comes to keeping traffic signals working during power outages. On Capitol Report, coming off of a special session of the Florida legislature last week, boy, they packed a lot of work into a really short period of time. They passed out legislation that, uh, number one, gives uh, frequent toll commuters a 50% discount every month. That's number one. They also okayed funding for communities recovering from Hurricane Ian and Nicole this year. That was a very big deal. And the major thing they did was to pass a really huge property insurance package. And Governor Ron DeSantis signed the three measures into law this week right after they passed. They are off for the holiday break. And here to break it down for us is Valerie Crowder, because you were down there at the Capitol following this every step of the way, Valerie. I sure was, Tom. I was there at the Capitol when lawmakers were very, very busy. And this piece of legislation does a number of things. Things aimed at stabilizing the property insurance market as Republicans so put it. And it was filed last Friday and passed both chambers on Wednesday. What exactly does it do, though, Valerie? That was the whole thing that led up to this special session. Florida's property insurance rate, especially in the residential arena, is collapsing and rates are expensive bloating and people can't get coverage because companies are bailing. Did this massive property tax package you just described resolve any of that? Well, Republicans have said that this property insurance legislation is not going to result in an overnight drop in rates. And they made that clear before they even met to pass the bill that it would take about two to three years before consumers start to see their rates go down. Now, the reason for that is because the way they went about addressing this property insurance crisis we have in Florida is basically giving the insurance industry leaders what they've been asking for for a very long time now. They say the reason that they haven't been able to lower rates in Florida, the reasons that they have been leaving the state and not being able to stay in business in the state is because of the excessive cost of litigation and the high cost of reinsurance. And those were two things that Republican lawmakers really set out uh, during the special session to address. And they did that by ending what's known as one-way attorney's fees. Now, when an insurance company loses in court, then they must pay the attorney's fees for the policyholder. That will be changed under this piece of legislation. Basically does what the insurance industry has been asking, which is disincentivize lawsuits. Now, of course, Democrats and attorneys who represent these policyholders in court, they are unhappy with this. They say that it's going to block consumers' access to the court, make it harder to sue, make it harder for them to hold insurance companies accountable if they don't pay what they're owed. Another boogeyman, though, that Republicans have long railed against is the roofing contractor who comes cruising through your neighborhood, stops at my house and says, buddy, your roof is in bad shape. I will take care of replacing it for you. And not only that, but I will deal with your insurance company and it'll all be taken care of and you don't have to do a thing. It's something called, I think, what, assignment of benefits? Does this package do anything about that? 
Yes, it does, actually, Tom. It gets rid of that. So the practice of assignments of benefits is ended under this piece of legislation. A third-party contractor can no longer take over a policyholder's benefits under their insurance policy. And so they are not going to be able to negotiate on their behalf. They're not going to be able to accept payment for work that's done in the aftermath of a disaster. And that's something that Democrats actually said that they liked, but across the board, Democrats voted against it. And House Minority Leader Fentress Driscoll actually put it quite well when she explained why Democrats voted against it. Florida House Republicans and senators just passed a bill that provides a $1 billion bailout to insurance companies and no real rate relief to Florida homeowners. That was the key reason that Democrats voted against this piece of legislation. They had actually proposed capping rates, forcing insurers to keep premiums low. And that was something Republicans would not get behind. And so Democrats, therefore, didn't support this this measure. What did the House sponsor of all this say after it passed, though? Was there any recrimination? Was there any apologies? Or was this just, hey, we did it and let's go home? The Republicans have said this is good for consumers. This is going to reduce rates over time. And on top of that, it does also shorten the time that insurance companies have to acknowledge claims, to start their investigation of claims, to pay claims. So that's something that's also been touted as a pro-consumer aspect. There was one very interesting quote from Representative Tom Leake, who sponsored the measure in the House, and he really uh, captures, I think, the, the magnitude of this piece of legislation. The work that we've been putting in to provide relief to consumers over the years in the property insurance market has culminated in the biggest, meatiest, beefiest uh, property insurance reform legislation that this state has ever seen. But wait, there's more. These folks got together and did some additional lawmaking while they were in Tallahassee. Tell us what else they did, Valerie. Yeah, they actually passed a disaster relief measure that included more than $750 million in funding for a variety of recovery projects and efforts in communities recovering from Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. Some of those include $150 million for housing. And just kind of breaking that down, that's $60 million to help residents who've been displaced with their home repairs, to help them uh, pay to, to, to relocate. Uh, to help them pay their insurance deductible. So there's a variety of uses for those funds. And there's $90 million to build new affordable housing in communities recovering from Ian and Nicole. And also in this legislation, it does provide property tax relief, which is a big deal for homeowners whose homes now are uninhabitable after the hurricanes. And so what that relief would do was actually uh, allow them to not have to pay taxes while their home is uninhabitable. And then, of course, it also includes funding for stormwater and wastewater recovery projects, funding for local government, matching funding for public assistance grants. And lawmakers said at the end that they would be willing to look at spending more in the regular session in March to help with community recovering from these two hurricanes. Finally, if you have a lot of toll roads in your neck of the woods, there's something in this piece of legislation for you too, right? 
Absolutely. This actually expands a program that is currently in place called SunPass Savings and offers frequent SunPass commuters relief on their tolls. What lawmakers did was they basically expanded the program to make it more widely available and to also increase the amount of savings that uh, frequent SunPass commuters get every month. DeSantis said the reason that lawmakers took this on during this special session was so that this would kick in by January 1st, the start of the new year. Happy New Year. And to you, Valerie Crowder, uh, coming up here on our end-of-year holidays, thank you for a terrific job in the intervening months. May you have a wonderful holiday season, and we will catch you during the inauguration of Governor Ron DeSantis, which will be January 3rd. So set your radio and your online sources of information. We'll be carrying that for you. Thanks, Valerie. Thank you, Tom, and happy holidays to you. The number of immigrants coming to the U.S. southern border is increasing, and so is the volume of the political rhetoric associated with that situation. But in many ways, the nation, and especially Florida, has been there before. The pivotal date, of course, was 1959 when Fidel Castro took power in Havana and began the exodus of Cuban exiles that has continued to this day. And they had a transformative effect on the state economically, culturally, politically. And I believe you can't really understand Florida if you don't understand the Cuban exiles because they've been such an integral part of making the state what it is today. That is David Campbell. He's a Tallahassee writer whose latest work is entitled 90 Miles and a Lifetime Away. It documents the mass immigration of Cubans to Florida in the course of the last 63 years. Campbell documents the sudden flood of people who fled the island and poured into South Florida following Fidel Castro's overthrow of the Batista regime. People in Miami really didn't quite know how to deal with it. At first, the city and nonprofit and churches were the ones who assumed the responsibility for providing services to these exiles because so many of them came over here destitute. They weren't allowed, the vast majority of them, to take any of their belongings, any of their assets, any of their money. They came here with a couple of changes of clothes and pocket money. And similar to today's immigration situation, there was even outright hostility to the influx. The locals at that time, in Miami in particular, were really kind of flummoxed, and there was a fair amount of resentment toward them because, you know, they got here and there began to be changes in the way the city felt, the way the city operated. On top of everything, says Campbell, is the ultimate political impact the Cubans would have at first in South Florida, and ultimately the state as a whole. Prior to that, South Florida had been, particularly Miami-Dade County, heavily Democratic. And so the political complexion of that whole community began to change simply because the Cubans were so oriented to the Republican Party, the, the vast majority of them. That GOP allegiance continues to this day. Of course, citizenship and the right to vote would be a while in coming for the Cuban exiles because, just like so many immigrants who come to the U.S. across the southern border today, the first Cuban refugees had no legal status. They didn't have green cards. They were allowed in on visa waivers. 
the government let them in, even though the vast majority of them did not have the kind of visas that were required then and, and typically are required now. It was not until 1966 that Congress came to the realization that we had hundreds of thousands of Cubans who were living in this country, and they were all on what was called parole. And that wasn't the only difference in how the federal government treated Cuban immigrants versus people from other lands. Young Cuban refugees, exiles who were in this country and could demonstrate that they met the need standards were given a loan from the federal government to go to college. Many of those loan recipients, notes Campbell, went on to become real movers and shakers in Florida. And it seems the federal government didn't exactly discourage even more immigration from Cuba after the initial surge. Castro was letting Cubans leave, and they were coming over on those boats starting in 1965. And President Johnson said, I want to avoid a humanitarian crisis in the Straits of Florida. I'll charter airliners and bring them here at our expense. All this begs the question, would all these Cubans have come to the United States had there been no repressive communist dictatorship in their homeland? Among the more than 50 people Campbell interviewed for 90 miles and a lifetime away was a former Florida governor and U.S. senator, a guy named Bob Graham. And his answer was, I think if Fidel Castro had not been a part of the equation, that eventually they would have come anyway. But they wouldn't have been coming because of the political situation on the island. They'd have been coming here for economic opportunity in the United States, just as so many other people in Latin America and the Caribbean continue to come to this country. The truth of that assessment, thinks Campbell, is that now, six years after Castro's demise, Cubans keep coming. And now they're coming alongside all those other immigrants. 250,000 Cubans will come to this country this calendar year. 250,000. 30,000 of them came in the month of October alone. They no longer come on airplanes to Miami. They fly to Nicaragua, and then they come overland up through Central America and Mexico, and they arrive at our southwest land border. A journey that began more than six decades ago, as chronicled in David Campbell's book. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, on top of all the other chaos and disruption a big disaster like a hurricane can cause, there are traffic hazards, such as signals that don't work when the power goes out. Some communities use small generators as a backstop, but that's expensive and also a short-term fix. While Hillsborough County has introduced its own emergency beacons on top of traffic lights in case of power outages, the city of Tampa is finding its solutions in sidewalks. We get more on that story from WUSF's Sky LeBron. On the corner of Cash Street and Jefferson Street in downtown Tampa, 84 solar panels line a long strip of sidewalk. According to Brandon Campbell, the city's smart mobility manager, these panels can power traffic lights at an intersection for three days. As far as I know, this is the only signal that has a dedicated solar array uh, to it in, in the country. 
Campbell says the city needs to find better backup options for traffic signals since backup power is limited and the number of generators doesn't come close to the number of signals. Of course, these solar sidewalks won't be the only solution. There are areas where a solar array on the sidewalk wouldn't work well because there's too much shade. Uh, If it's in the shadow of a building, that sort of thing. Ideally, Campbell says the city could build more solar sidewalks and utilize some of the county's emergency beacons to turn downed traffic signals into four-way stops. That, he says, would be a cheaper option. He says the city is now trying to get funding for another solar sidewalk near Blake High School. That story from WUSF Sky LeBron. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Stephanie Colombini and Sky LeBron. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Happy holidays, and please join us next week for our special end-of-year Capitol Report airing on many of these Florida public radio stations. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.